Hey there, Taylor. This is Carl calling and just wanted to talk about running away and balanced encounters. And I, I definitely appreciate the idea of the world being not balanced in the party's favor. I really enjoyed when I ran my uh, Broken Lands for a while that even these third level guys ran, they're out in the wilderness is different than the dungeon, right? The dungeon you kind of know. But out in the wilderness, anything can happen depending on where you go. And at some one point, they got a flyover by a dragon. And it was like, uh, you know, let's all run and hide. Let's all run and hide. They didn't all run and hide. Some people got tagged or spotted. And then the dragon did like a breath weapon and killed some henchmen. And one player barely survived. Um, we had the, you know, roll them over rule type of thing. So that was pretty cool, I thought. Sounds like fun to me. <laughs> those kind of encounters, those kinds of challenges, the ones where you shouldn't win, but you do, where you barely come out on top, or maybe you may lose a few friends in the in the getting, man, those are so much more memorable than the, uh, the ones where you algorithmically come out appropriate to the challenge level. Years ago, this, this, this reminds me, years ago, I remember advising some folks that... Uh, the best way for an encounter to go was for the party to think that they were gonna lose and that they were gonna wipe, and then they didn't. They came out on top. And I'm 50-50 I'm on that statement, because looking back, I don't know if 2004 me knew that you're not supposed to, well, I don't know if 2004 me was thinking about, you know, kids' gloves. So. In the real game, you don't want to fudge it. You don't want to balance it in the favor of the player characters. You don't want to cheat because you're cheating them of your victory. And I've, I've talked about this before. I won't go on another tangent, but that I think has come up in schools of play in recent vintage, the phrase where they think they're going to lose, but they don't. And I've heard that in the context of encounters that are built to tax a certain way. And there's two, two sides to this coin. On the one hand, there's our side, the, the old school side, where the, in the danger is presented and the party overcomes and they deserve it. And then there's the other side of the coin where you have more, more math involved, you have the uh, planning on the part of the DM involved where they're statistically likely to get taxed and their heart is gonna say, oh no, we're losing, but then mathematically they come out on top. That's not really a victory. I mean, they win, sure, but that's if it is. It's almost at that point a, st a statistically predetermined outcome, and so those are the two sides of the coin. And so again, thinking back, I don't know what my uh, my former self was thinking, but we're gonna go with the Carl definition because man, again, those are some good times, good times to remember and good stories to tell. All right, a second message because I guess we only have a minute, or we still have a minute, and that is. Balance is a funny thing. I know that there definitely is an expectation in more modern games. I've played with people who only played 5e, and they expect like a balanced encounter, and they don't understand the dynamics of a of like a stronghold or a dungeon. And while players who have experienced my gaming style and have played other games with me kind of understand that dynamic, and like, okay, right, don't don't cross that threshold because you know that could probably trigger another encounter because the guys on the other side or the guys down the hall 
uh, we'll hear our fighting, blah, blah, blah. So let's, let's, you know, fall back, fall back, and then players don't listen. And the whole dungeon is kind of, uh, uh, I guess what's it called? I forgot what's called in World of Warcraft when you kind of um, get the whole dungeon. And that's sometimes what players do, and they get mad when they get a TPK. about that and I've seen that but fortunately when running it I've never had somebody do that to me. Regarding the minute limit, I think I'm going to set up a speak pipe. I may have a speak pipe by the time this episode airs. Who knows? But yeah, I'm going I'm to go ahead and do that because one, it's just so much easier. Two, you get the time frame and all that fun stuff. But yeah, so be on the lookout for that link in future episodes. Either way, thank you so much for calling in. It's fun to be getting calls again. It's great to know that we're engaging in these kind of conversations again. And it's good to hear your voice. Going forward, if we ever get to uh, play in, I will make a point to be cautious in your games. And in the event that we uh, get, get wiped, I'll celebrate with you. Because as everyone now knows, the K in TPK stands for Carl. <laughs> again, thanks for calling in. Hey Taylor, Kevin calling in from Red Caps Podcast. Just finished listening to your latest episode where you're talking about abstract con- combat foo. Um, really enjoyed it. I agree with pretty much everything you were saying on there. Uh, you know, being able to have a interesting cin- cinematic uh, combat makes everything more interesting and fun at the table for everybody. Um, the only word of caution with it is to make sure that you're not giving the the one person who has um, the best ability to articulate a scene, some undue advantage in combat um, over everybody else who doesn't have that same ability to articulate it as well. So, um, but assuming the DM can can do that properly, um, then yeah, I think it's a fantastic thing to have in place and only enhances the game. That is a very good point and one that I've actually been called out on before. So. Uh, I don't know if the audio is scratchy on the other end uh, or if Kevin there was calling in with a COVID throat, but the important part is that when adjudicating stuff that doesn't have a system behind it, you can't show partiality, you can't show favoritism, and you can't allow the more charismatic player for his character to do cooler stuff. Now, you do want to encourage thinking outside the box. You do want to encourage uh, creative problem solving, but at the same time, you just you have to you have to keep a balance. And I like to proceduralize those things. I have yet to proceduralize fancy stuff like that. And so uh, maybe, maybe there's a solution out there. Other folks who have ideas, uh, is this an adaptation of the deep die that uh, is more narratively driven? Uh, let me know. Uh, if you have a solution, let me know, and I'll be happy to promote it. But yeah, anyway, long story no plot, it's important to it's important to encourage that creative thinking, but it's also but you don't want to show favoritism. So yeah, that's a very good point, and thank you for the call-in. Hey Taylor, Kevin calling in from the Red Caps Podcast. Just listening to your latest episode where you're talking about uh, GM metagaming. Uh, or responding to the call on that. And you mentioned that uh, 
you thought it was adversarial or GM metagaming if the monsters all pile on uh, the healing user or the, the cleric, I guess, or if they all piled on the magic user. I don't see a problem with that. If you're playing them, if the monsters are intelligence, if they're intelligent beings, maybe they've encountered this sort of a character before and they know that that character is a support character or it will uh, make the fight more difficult for them. Uh, so they're trying to eliminate the weak one first. Maybe they're also trying to go for the same thing that the players do, try to get a quick morale check in. And if they can eliminate one character, maybe the rest of the players will run away. So... I don't know. I don't think that's inherently uh, adversarial or inherently metagaming. It may just be smart monster management, but it all comes down to how intelligent these monsters are. In retrospect, too, thinking about it, it's not necessarily... Oh, there goes my... Uh, there goes my recycling bin. I'm outside watching the boys. Uh, anyway, the... It, it makes sense for a pack predator to attack a weakly armored target. If the magic user, for instance, you have a guy in his nightgown, uh, including the nightcap, just kind of hanging out, a pack of wolves is going to naturally be more attracted to that target than the mean-looking guy with the metal armor and the flashy shield. So that, that sort of does make sense uh, if you, you attack in a way that's consistent with the idiom of the monster. Now, if a gelatinous cube were to try to roll around and do that, then that'd be, well, that would also be unsuccessful because they move, what, 10 feet per turn? But anyway, beside the point, if it fits the idiom, it makes sense to me. Interestingly enough, the caller actually texted me after I'd aired that episode, and he mentioned that where I had interpreted it as a metagamey thing, uh, where the DM was being adversarial. Dada earmuffs. You need earmuffs? Dada earmuffs I need. I don't have any earmuffs. I only have boy earmuffs. Will um, you go get your boy earmuffs from the store? Not the store, the inside? Um, I need, I need these Oh, no, not the... So what was I saying? The caller actually texted me on the Discord, and he mentioned that I had misinterpreted his intent. Where I had gone in an adversarial direction, he had intended it for more player benefiting. So, if I remember correctly... Wait, I, why am I paraphrasing? I can just go look on the Discord. Okay, I've got my Discord app open, and I'm looking at his response. So, he, he gave me two things. The first was what I remembered. That is, the determinant of adversarial... Keep working on it. You can do it. We're learning how to put our seatbelt on. So, anyway, uh, point, point number two. Uh, I interpreted that the targeting characters like we talked about, but also there's the opportunity of the DM saying, how many hit points do you have left? And if it's low, targeting someone else. So cheating, cheating the player. I'm just going to go in my black seat. You're going to climb over and go into the old chair? Yeah. Be careful. I, I cannot unbuckle you from that one. So be careful if you buckle yourself in. But anyway, he had mentioned that there were two points, on the first of which uh, was the one I did not remember, uh, that is in line with the adversarial pattern, and that is regarding the rumor table. So where I mentioned that there was the possibility of, uh, is, that, is that actually metagaming or is that lazy DM prep? Um, so is that lazy DM prep or is that metagaming? And from what he said, you could do that in an adversarial way so as to make the rumor false, true, or partially false based on how the party prepared. So 
uh, going into the fire temple, so you prepared a bunch of water-related spells. Haha! The rumor was only partially true, and so now the spells are useless. That kind of uh, kind of bad behavior. Uh, at the same time, you can you can ask the player, okay, how many hit points do you have left? Or if you're tracking it as the referee, how many hit points do they have left? Targeting the player with the higher hit points so as to give them that little edge to get out. Now, my players would catch me doing that. <laughs> and I, I thoroughly oppose that. And he's, he's absolutely right that that is insidious. Because when you deny the player the right to lose, then the stakes are off. And all of a sudden, the victory is hollow and you've robbed the, you've robbed them honestly of a uh, of a true victory so it's like it's like winning with uh loaded dice then you, you didn't really win did you anyway great uh great call-in or great series of call-ins and a great series of responses thank you thank you for contributing a little bit more fuel into that fire hey taylor interesting episode your latest one um I don't know. The Moosehead. I never heard it called that before. That's interesting. So as far as what you talked about, though, the idea of describe what you're doing as opposed to rolling the dice, I'm with you 100%. And that's definitely something that could be ported into other games. I, I think the key thing, of course, is to make sure you're not designing things where if the players don't think of what to do, it stops the game dead in its tracks, right? And part of that's by running an open world as opposed to just running a a railroad thing, but you, you know, if they get deep in the temple and they're trying to get into the secret room and they can't think what to do, I'm not saying just let them roll die to do it, but maybe have clues throughout the temple they can pick up because you know it's kind of a shame if it's one of those things where it just stops dead in its tracks and they never get further. But you know, maybe the next party will get further, and maybe that's just what's destined to happen. I don't know. Anyway, take care, and I will talk to you soon. Two quick things on that point. One, and this this is by no means original, I was uh, given this advice way back when and then I've implemented it. Whenever a party is supposed to find something or there's a direction that if they're going to accomplish a particular goal they have to figure out, always assume they will not find the clue and drop between three and five clues. Now, the, the, as I've heard of it, it's the rule of threes, but I, there are so many three rules that I don't want to get them confused. So anyway, three to five is a good number of hints to drop on your party, and even then, sometimes they're going to need to get a lucky dice roll. Um, but that kind of ties in to the next thing I wanted to say. <clears throat> Honestly, I almost never design solutions. Whenever I run a game, I design problems. Like I said, this is, uh, th this is a lair for cultists. They are patrolling in this manner. Um, how are you going to get in? And the players have to figure that out. I don't think about, well, how they, need to, they need to cover their tracks with this particular item. I don't think about, okay, they need to analyze their patrol patterns and come in at this particular time. No, it's... They have to figure that out, and I actively avoid figuring it out for them, not because I don't enjoy it, 
but because I enjoy it more when they surprise me. I want the players to think outside the box, think within the context of their character rather than their character sheet, and when they do, I like to reward that because that's the kind of game I enjoy playing, and I assume that the people who play with me, uh, who put up with me, <laughs> like that kind of game too. So good, good, good thoughts. Thank you for calling in. Hey, Taylor. Uh, great plug here. Uh, I could definitely attest to the the freedom associated with the ha- having access to multiple characters in the campaign. You know, playing in the Ash Coast, and I started out with Agzad, the magic user. Played him uh, two sessions, I think, and then see all the fun the fighters are having. By God, I want to make myself a fighter. So I did, and I played him, and I had a blast with both characters. And I'll continue to have a blast with both characters. I think another thing that's really cool about it is depending on who is at the table and what they're playing, you can kind of switch it up to get a more favorable party composition, you know? You don't necessarily want to run out with four magic users at a time, you know? Much more likely to need a couple more fighters. That's all I got. And the first fighter, as I recall, to benefit from the critical hit approach. So that is uh, our fight, uh, our man equivalence one fighter that uh, Graveslug here had brought in. He rolled a double on his 2d6 attack, and in a house rule at our table, that counts as two hits. He was able to one shot a zombie from across the room. I am having fun running it too. Uh, I know we haven't played uh, in a couple months now just because my life has gotten nuts. But hopefully after the holiday, hopefully after things settle down at work, hopefully once the little guy is sleeping through the night in his own room, um, then we'll get uh, we'll get back in the groove. And I'm very excited. I've got a big uh, hex map planned out. I've got the principles of the mapping article that is treating the mazes in the mountains article uh, that I wrote on the blog. I'll try to link it in the show. I, I don't need to link it in the show notes. But anyway, anyway, anyway I've, I've got the map. I've got a bunch of adventure sites. I've got a new tool that I wrote to help me to be more quick about restocking uh, and uh, lo- logically provisioning but uh, anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. I'm enjoying the game, and I really hope that in the new year, we'll be able to get back into the groove, get some more sessions under our belt, and really start uh, kicking names and taking um, bubblegum. <laughs> hey, Taylor. Great episode on how to find a game. I was lucky as a kid. You know, I didn't have a ton of friends, but my friends were into it, so that worked out. And then I went in the Army, and, you know, blundering around, I was able to find other guys in the Army that were into it, so... We were able to play on deployments and, you know, back in where base and stuff like that. You are the fifth military man that has, uh, that I can think of in my immediate circle of gaming people who has talked about playing while in the service. Yeah, I feel like I should have, uh, <laughs> I should have signed up. I'm missing out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, because I've kind of gravitated towards the hobby and hung out in game stores, stuff like that, I, you know, was always able to find people to play with. Up until when I moved out, when I got stationed at Fort Bragg, I kind of broke from the hobby for a while, got into other hobbies, so I wasn't really actively looking for anybody to play with at that point. 
but then when I moved up to Virginia and my son was old enough to play, we started looking around and found some local groups, you know, through meetup. And we hooked up with, a, with you know, different groups, more war game groups and role-playing groups, but, that, but some role-playing groups playing first edition D&D and basic um, Beckme. And, and that was okay. And, and then we kind of found out, you know, my son was more into board games than role-playing games at the time. And I had another friend from church actually who's way into board games. And so we, we just did that. But then I got on the online community and the online community, of course, you can find anything, you, you know. And yeah, I've had a really good experience with the online communities, first with Google Plus and then with Discords and, and whatnot. So I remember G Plus. I was one of the early G Plus people like the, the you remember that when it originally rolled out it rolled out in waves you had to apply to get in and I had at the time I was a I wasn't a social media person but G plus was different I was gonna try that and then I remember friending or whatever it was the people that I knew and they were just doing the same vapid stuff that they were doing on like 10 other social media sites and it's I remember I kind of dropped off for a bit I came back for a bit to talk gaming but then I ended up um, I complained a lot <laughs> about my life and um, ended up losing a bunch of people a bunch of contacts so yeah then I, I tried to I tried to come back again at the very end just roll up another account but um, you know delete all those old posts and try to start anew but yeah came in just in time for it to fail <laughs> for it to turn off so yeah, spotty history for G plus for me makes me wish that uh, makes me wish I was on the right forums, I guess, to have uh, to have jumped into the right place. But yeah, is what it is. We we make do with where we are, and then we uh, run with the shoes we're wearing. Yeah, I would definitely recommend you know just start looking and asking. The worst thing that happens, is, especially with online, the worst thing that happens, provided you're smart enough not to give out a ton of personal information, is that you know, you waste an evening or waste a couple hours, you, you know, and that's not the group for you. But there are definitely people, whatever niche role-playing game you want to play, there are people out there playing it, like you say. So that that's a great thing. But great episode, great advice to people, and thank you for all you've done during OSR October. I do what I can, and thank you for listening. Yeah, thinking about Meetup, <laughs> man. We had such a good experience with Meetup when we were in Georgia. We found a board game group. I found some D&D type groups. And the D&D type groups were more into the story part of it. So I didn't quite fit in there. But the board gamers we drilled with right away. And didn't work when we moved to Florida. But nah, we'll figure it out. And uh, we're in a different phase of life. And we'll see where we go. Again, thanks for listening. And thanks for calling in. Actually, I actually have two things. Uh, but... Uh... Only one is related to tabletop games, um, and that is the subject of min-maxing. Um, I would also perhaps call that special specialization. Um, we do that in real life. We spend years um, going to school to get a degree to specialize, um, to maximize in a skill to the detriment of other skills. Um, but I feel like there's a connotation in role-playing games that min-maxers are trying to make their characters the most powerful they can be across multiple disciplines or, or, or something. Um, but I could be wrong on that. 
Min-maxing is kind of more of a state of mind. TSR additions have the ability to change your stats. So the strength of your fighter being your prime requisite is going to be important and you can sacrifice other abilities for it. Same story with the cleric and magic user and thief. However, as a result of the random generation of abilities, it's still kind of up in the air as to what you have and your abilities are less important than your level and the talent with which you play the character. Similarly, I feel like the purpose of the prime requisite is to reinforce an archetype. Your fighting man is portrayed in Appendix N Fantasy as being strong and athletic, so strength, obviously, if you bump that up, you fit the archetype better. Conversely, you have your magic user, who, in Vance, interestingly enough, magic users fight with swords on occasion, but we won't go there. The important part is the magic user archetypically is going to be the bookish type, the intelligent type, who spends his days in study rather than in exercise. So, again, you cause the player to atrophy one stat in favor of the other, and it reinforces the, the archetype. By contrast, you have the Watsi editions, where you introduce point by, you introduce the stat array type thing, and so you're motivated to get that 18, get that uh, race that gives you the plus two bonus, take advantage of the feats, try to mix and match the classes, and it comes into the meta build game that is characteristic of the third edition in particular, and is generally party to Watsi editions in the whole. In, in the whole. Interestingly, thinking back, the term min-maxer typically comes, in my experience at least, it has come up in reference to someone who is attempting to optimize the mechanical advantages of a character uh, to the extent that it damages their uh, versatility, a sort of a one-trick pony. Uh, I think I've told a story in the past about a friend who made a character in third edition who specialized in the spiked chain. I remember I lost my cool a little bit because it nullified a handful of encounters, but then I was guided by a wiser and more level-headed DM. Just throw centaurs, dude. <laughs> All of a sudden, that spike chain was useless. All those improved tripped feats did him no good. But to conclude that, the idea is that you're taking the character out of the world and you're putting the character into a sort of hyper-specialized niche at the expense of other things and at the expense of the roleplay. It makes me wonder, because the TSR editions, roleplay means something different. When you look at the player rating system in the first edition DMG, player ratings are based on the way that they play the role within the party, not the way they play the role as you might in, uh, in a theater kind of situation. I'm very curious how min-maxing or character optimization would occur to a uh, TSR alumni. Um, but it's a moot point, as the OSR editions tend to lack that kind of customization. You get what you get, and you improve by the level and by the wit on your uh, brain. <laughs> I'm curious what uh, listeners you might think. So what is the difference, is there a difference, between 
taking the optimal stat placement in a uh, Watsi edition versus trying to change out your stats or pump up your prime rec. What is the difference? And I'm, I'm, I kind of, I've kind of already gone off on how I think I see it, but I'm curious what you think. Tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm wrong. I'm looking forward to the call. But I think my idea of min-maxing comes from, pl from playing in a group where they would try and take the absolute best of things then uh, find the, 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 the right combina combination to make the most powerful character that they could, as opposed to um, picking things to make your character really good at, at, one, at a particular thing. And the, the example I have is I, I've been guilty of, um, of trying to specialize in an area. And my favorite character, and I know this is going to uh, ruffle some feathers, but my favorite character was an illusionist, a gnome illusionist at that. At least it wasn't a kinder. I've shared about him often to, to others, but uh, his name was Jashard Trotwood the Brave. And um, all of his spells or illusions were entirely about either keeping the opponent or threats away from him or getting himself away from them. And, but he, he passed himself off as a... Um, as a soothsayer, a seer of, seer of dreams, of, of visions, a prognosticator. Um, and uh, he would, quote-unquote, consult the fates and use a little prestidigitation to uh, determine which way that he felt like the party should go um, to uh, preserve himself. As any self-respecting illusionist should. I bring him up because... I certainly made cho choices in the character creation to make him pretty good at what he did. Now, I, I was not um, min-maxing in the sense of making sure he had a plus five or, or, or the, the, the greatest bonus or anything like that, but, you know, he had a thing that I, I had him do, and it fit, it fit a... a, a an idea of a character that I wanted, and maybe that's where I think that that line needs to, to divide. Where, as well, I think one of your uh, previous Collins said it, that if you specialize, just make sure that when you can't do that one thing, you're okay with not doing that one thing, and your whole character generation isn't about that. Exactly, as the. 10-minute rant that I went on earlier that I really probably should have waited till you got to the end of the thought before going on kind of agrees with the, uh, the idea of the min-maxer is somebody who does their thing to the exclusion of other things. And to with the case of your illusionist, I would say that was just doing the class. It's kind of like saying that the thief is min-maxing because they're focusing on getting their skill rolls off instead of trying to cast spells. No, that's the purpose of the class. So, yeah, I think there's there's a difference between playing to type 
optimizing your choices and the min-max aesthetic. And that wraps up another episode of the Clearix Wear Ringmail Podcast, an independently operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the You Can Totally Steal This license. As always, sound effects are from Mixkit.co, used under the Mixkit royalty-free license. Segments recorded in a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device. And Clearixware Ringmail assumes no liability in the consumption or distribution of the podcast. By listening, all parties agree. Any parties with questions can reach out on the Clearixware Ringmail blog. Parties who are dissatisfied can go suck an egg. Thank you for listening, everybody, and delve on.